Radio Sustain, a journal of fair trade, resilient rural communities, safe food, and a healthy environment. Brought to you by IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. This edition of Radio Sustain is for Tuesday, March 31st, 2009. I'm Allison Page at IATP in Minneapolis. Today on the program, Atina Diffley discusses biodiversity and organic agriculture, Woody Tash explains slow money, and Larissa Lockwood and Tom Fewins talk about slow travel. last 100 years, it is estimated that the United States has lost 93% of its food biodiversity. While industrial agriculture has played a role in limiting biodiversity, organic agriculture embraces it. Ben Lilliston sat down with Minnesota Gardens of Egan farmer Tina Diffley to learn how organic agricultural practices can stop biodiversity loss as well as mitigate climate change. When we talk about biodiversity on a farm, what are we talking about? Talking about all the different species that are involved in the ecosystem of that farm. We're talking about soil species, bacteria and nematodes and protozoas and arthropods, spiders, mites, vertebrae species and mammal species, fungus species. You're also talking about all the relationships between these species and all the genetic variations between the species. So it's a very complex thing. It's very crucial to the health and the well-being of our planet and our ecosystems. So are we losing this on our farms throughout the U.S.? It's estimated that we've already lost 93% of our our food biodiversity in the United States in the last 100 years. It's estimated that if we continue our agricultural and our development practices as they presently are, we'll lose another 50% of our biodiversity in the next 10 to 20 years. This is very serious. Biodiversity is the fundamental basis of our healthy ecosystems. We need complex relationships in our ecosystems for them to remain healthy, so the loss of them really affects and threatens the the well-being and the health of all life on the planet. How does organic agriculture improve or enhance biodiversity? Well, one component of organic agriculture is biological diversity habitat. And many of the practices on organic farms utilize biological diversity to create healthy fertility systems. So we utilize biological diversity and the many species that are available in the ecosystems to create healthy fertility, pest, and disease control. How does uh, an organic farm and, and healthy biodiversity on a farm affect water quality, for example? Well, we really begin with the soil because the soil is the area where the most biologic diversity is present. And we don't see it, but it's there, and a lot of it's in a microbial form. And by feeding the microbial life in the soil, we start at the very bottom of the food chain, and we filters up and creates uh, carbon and nutrient cycling through all the different species in the ecosystem. By increasing the microbial life and the organic matter in the soil, it reduces the amount of erosion, and it reduces the amount of nitrogen that we need to apply from a fossil fuel and a water-soluble source. And thinking about organic and answers to climate change, you know, what lessons does organic have to teach us? Well, organic is one of our most exciting solutions for the climate change issue because it's been found at the Rodale Institute in these 28-year-old conventional organic side-by-side field trials that organic systems sequester 15 28% more carbon than conventional farming systems. They also use one-third less energy. So they're not only sequestering more carbon, but they're using less energy. So they have 
a lot to offer as far as reducing some of these climate change threats. The other really positive news about organic agricultural systems is that they are less vulnerable to drought and high temperatures because of the increased organic matter in the organic systems. They do a better job of returning soil moisture for the plants to utilize when it's dry and hasn't rained. Running an organic farm here in Minnesota, surrounded by a lot of conventional farmers, what do you think it's going to take to expand organic acreage and, and either convince conventional farmers to adopt some organic practices or add new farmers to the system? What are the, some of the obstacles to expanding it? Well, I think there's really two forces that will really help make some of these changes. Uh, one of them is the consumer, by the consumer demanding and supporting crops that are grown organic and sustainable, it will really force the market. Uh, the consumer also has a lot of influence on policymakers by creating policies that will support farmers in the transition. So the consumer has a lot of influence. We need a lot more money for research. This is a really big issue right now. Organic agricultural research is not even getting a fair share of the research dollars. Approximately 3% of agriculture is now in organic systems, but we are getting less than 1% of the research money. So that's simply not fair. We need to get a fair share. Organic research is also valid for conventional systems to utilize. And organic is the up and coming. It's where we're finding a lot of solutions to our ecological and environmental issues, including climate change. So we really need to get an all out effort on understanding these systems and getting some verification on how these systems work and educating farmers about them. Great, thanks very much. You're welcome. of the current financial crisis, alternatives to the Wall Street model are gaining more traction. Ben Lillison sat down with Woody Tash, author of Inquiries into the Nature of Slow Money, to discuss what slow money means and how it relates to sustainable agriculture. So what is slow money? Uh, it's the opposite of fast money. Any more questions? <laughs> it's, uh, it's a um, new way of thinking about catalyzing the flow of money to local food systems. Let's say early in the process of invention, but the broad outlines are, are obvious. Uh, everything from CSAs to slow food restaurants, local processing, small niche uh, organic brands, artisan food production of various kinds, all of the little things that we know that are important to building from the ground up local food systems as, as a hub of local economies. What are the philosophical underpinnings of this approach as opposed to the Wall Street approach? Well, it's, it's way more obvious now than it was even six months ago, so, which is kind of a crazy coincidence, I guess we'd say. If you think about the derivatives market as a rough analogy to GMOs and monoculture, I think it kind of gets you where you need to be. I mean, the, the systems are all tied together and they're all dangerous because they're way overextended in ways that are not truly diversified. And I like to think about actual diversity as opposed to diversification. And if you think about ecological diversity and cultural diversity and economic diversity, you'd be thinking about a lot of small enterprises that stay rooted in their places. 
So what are some of the obstacles that we're facing or structural barriers to growing this idea of Salomonics? The biggest is maybe the most obvious, which is changing investor expectations. As long as people are remain addicted to this concept of shareholder entitlement, meaning there's no such thing as too much money, there's no such thing as a company that's too big, there's no such thing as growth that's too fast, that will be a big stumbling block. And sometimes when people hear a full exposition of all the details of what we're talking about, they say, wait a minute, you'll never be able to do that. You're going to have to change investor consciousness. But I think it's happening. Just the way CSAs are already happening, even though the market isn't organized, investors are starting to question some of the real fundamentals of this globalized crazy system we have. And now that the thing is really shaking in a way that nobody could have anticipated a year or two ago, I think people are really ready to have that discussion. But that is, underneath it all, people have to be willing to make less money and to understand the qualitative benefits of the enterprises that they are then able to invest in. If you know somebody, you know the product, you know the quality, you know where it came from, there's a lot of qualities that come out of that. Again, they're cultural, they're and environmental and social, you know, all at the same time. What are some of the things that if someone was uh, interested to start making investments right now, what are the type of things that they would start it's investing ve- uh, in? It's very hard. That's why we're doing this. The book is not just a book. It's, it's also an NGO called Slow Money. And we are this year uh, designing a first fund. We're going to try to raise 50 to $100 million and use these dollars to seed a whole bunch of local initiatives in different regions around the country. This is really about disintermediation. It's about getting the big foundations and the big Wall Street firms out of the way and connecting local investors with local food enterprises. But it's going to require some pump priming. So we're trying to raise the money that would just prime the pump. We're going to try to pull it off as a nonprofit so that we really can get out of the way, so that we can just use the money as a catalyst. But the goal is to seed a whole bunch of different creative investment schemes that would link local investors with local food enterprises with the goal of generating a very modest, but but what we think will be increasingly attractive long-term you know, rate of return for people. And people will enjoy the rate of return because they'll also be able to see what it is they're investing in in their region. So they'll see farms that are preserved. They'll see, they might be able to participate in CSAs that have gotten some of the investment capital, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Thanks very much. All right, my pleasure. Traveling across the world without flying may sound far-fetched, but former IETB intern Larissa Lockwood and Tom Fewins are proving that traveling slowly is not only possible, but also has a lot of advantages over flying. The two maintain a blog, World in Slow Motion, that recently won Lonely Planet's best travelogue of 2009. We spoke with them about what it means to be a surface traveler. 
why did you decide to travel around the world and why did you think we're not going to fly we're just going to go on ground and water well you know it's an incredibly big place out there and i've always been fascinated by other countries other people other cultures and personally i've had long had a desire to go quite some distance say from london to cairo without flying not for green reasons just because i'm interested in watching the way places change as you move through them if you think of london and cairo they're such completely different places if you were to fly between them it's a to b it's bang suddenly a big change different people different faces different food architecture climate if you go slowly then you watch these places change as you go along you watch the scenery change gradually you you see your first minaret or taste your first chilies or you see your first mountains and you know that you're you're moving between zones you're you're moving on from in this case from the western world towards the middle east in our case it's from london to beijing so that's been a long-held desire and we couple that with our increased concern about climate change and the impact of aviation on that and we thought well we put the two together and see if we can we can do it without flying what are some of the things that you saw by not flying? How do you think you saw that place differently by coming in by train or bus? I think it sort of relates to sort of an element of serendipity about it, where you, you happen across places or people which you'd, you'd never see if, if you were flying, whether it's a particular town or particular mode of transport or someone else who can never afford to fly. Say in Russia, when we took the train across Siberia, many people actually use the train, even though it takes a week to get from, say, Moscow to Habarovsk because they can't afford to fly. So if you were to go on a plane, you wouldn't meet these people. You wouldn't meet the sort of the local, relatively poor people. You'd, you'd meet the richer Russians. But because we travel with these people, our lives ourselves were enriched because of we learned about how they live their lives. You also realise how sort of arbitrary some of the sort of uh, national boundaries are, because in the area sort of the south of China, the north of Laos, north of Vietnam, the people there are very similar, and you know it's sort of the Hmong group, and they're called the Miao in China, but yet yeah, they're living in three different countries. So I think if you just landed there, like flew in there, you kind of wouldn't pick up on that. But because we travelled through them all, they all sort of joined together, and you realise they sort of have an identity in and of themselves, regardless of the sort of political boundaries. Do you think it was more challenging to travel with languages and so forth via train and buses rather than just an airport? I mean, what were some of the obstacles? That yeah, you know? I, challenging, more adventurous, you know, because uh, spending a week on a train with a load of Russians and we don't speak Russian, they don't speak English, and, you know, we're communicating via, um, I had a point-it book, which is what the BBC journalists and British diplomats use, and it's a little book with pictures of sort of bus tickets and different types of food and animals. So you literally just point at things. So we'd have conversations based around this, you know, and, you know, we'd make friends with all these random people along the way. Amazingly, once we got over the fact we weren't going to be able to communicate for a few months verbally, you somehow we got by, you know, and it was... it. Getting around was easy, like it, I was especially worried about China. I had no idea what to expect, but the public transport system there is fantastic. The trains are clean, efficient, and staying in the hostel, we would get the staff there who speak a bit of English to write down what sort of ticket we wanted. Then we'd just go to the ticket office and give them the bit of paper and have our ticket and off we went. So yeah, we got around things and it made it, it, made it more fun and you interact a lot more with, mm. with the people of the country you're staying in. If you were going to start over again, what would be some of the things you'd do different? What would you recommend also to people who want to take this on themselves? You know, if we could do it again, there's lots of different places we'd like to go to. But in terms of being more prepared or missing out this or that, 
Nothing springs immediately to mind. Practicality-wise, yeah. I would have a joint account and have one where they don't charge you for account. taking money out of the wall. Yeah, a, yeah, a bank account, because we have spent hundreds on bank fees, you know, withdrawing money from ATMs, and there are some accounts back home mm. where they don't charge you for that. And there's, and there's so plenty of things. do that. Yeah, and there's plenty of things we've, we've picked up on the route, which perhaps we didn't use earlier. In the US, we've done lots of couch surfing through the couch surfing website, and that's been fantastic. And we did a bit in Japan, but not before that. It's a good way of saving money, but it's also a great way of meeting local people and learning more about their culture rather than staying in a in a hotel or a guest house full of other Westerners. So if we knew about that a bit earlier, perhaps we would have used that a bit more as well. So you have a blog called World in Slow Motion. Could you talk a little bit about what's the thinking behind that blog, what you're trying to accomplish? Well, it started off being a standard sort of blog for friends and family, just instead of sending out group emails, you know, they could choose to log on and have a look. But then we started writing it and realised we really loved writing and that we could also use it as a method of communication to not only inspire other people to get excited about travelling slowly, travelling over land and over sea, but also giving advice how to do it. Because we spent months and months, you know, hundreds of hours pulling the information together. You know, is there a ferry between Russia and Japan? You know, how can you get a visa for this place? And so on. And so we just thought it would be really helpful for other surface travellers to have that information in one point. So, yeah, so that's what the other purpose of it is. The common reaction is, oh, you've done all these things, I'm really jealous. Which is the last thing we want to do. But in a way, we're still showing we're inspiring them. But also by providing that information we're enabling people so you know save up the money save up the time you can go and do it and the information is there for you so we hope that other people can follow in our footsteps great thanks very much thank Thank you. you radio sustain is a project of iatp the institute for agriculture and trade policy find us on the web at iatp.org radio sustain is produced by ben lilliston radio sustains engineer is patrick Sai. the music on the program was tall fiddler by deo a change is gonna come by prince buster wake up by arcade fire and hung up on my baby by l michael's affair i'm allison page thanks for listening